0: So this morning, we're going to continue our series in the Psalms. Uh, If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 96. This, as uh, Charles Spurgeon called it, the great mission hymn, the proclamation of the church. This actually was sung by King David. Uh, When you get a chance, you can turn back to 1 Chronicles, verses 22 to 33. And the circumstances of the writing of this hymn is pretty significant. Because when David was growing up, you kind of know the story of David and Goliath, where David comes before the Philistine champion and slays him with a stone. But the Philistines were this ravaging, war-lusting nation who would torment Israel over and over and over again. So this song was sung by David when he defeated the Philistines and recovered the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets that Moses held that were chiseled out by God's hand, the bread of manna that fed his people in the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem. So this is the victory song that David sings, lifting up his conquering Lord. This is a song of declaration and proclamation not compromise and convincing. And when we come together to worship our Lord, we are heralding the King, declaring the Lord. We're not peddling mythology. So that's going to be the tone this morning. And this morning I want us to see is what does it mean that Jesus is not just Savior, but also Lord? Who is the Lord and what does that mean for us? I guess Savior is one of those terms that everyone accepts readily, right? Jesus died to make me free. Now I'm free to do whatever I want. Those people don't understand lordship. Jesus died for sin to be lord of all. And if we're honest, lordship is one of the things we probably struggle with the most because we don't want to give up the throne of our hearts. We don't want someone else in control. We don't want God to reign in the world And honestly reign in our lives. We'd rather be the kings of our own kingdom. We don't like to humble ourselves before our maker. We don't like to humble ourselves before the Lord of all. To be honest, we kind of shudder away from that picture of Jesus being Lord, coming back one day in a robe, dripped in blood, who's going to carry out his wrath on the unrighteous. The same Jesus you see in the pictures, carrying his sheep and smiling. The same one who comes back with a sword. Because the sin we talked about earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism, God does not look, overlook any sin. The same Savior who pays for the sins of those who believe in Him is going to take out His vengeance on those who reject Him. So this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is both our Savior and our Lord fully. And this is what our gospel proclamation should sound like. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we open up the scriptures this morning, we open up a text that was written to another people in another time, celebrating your victory, celebrating your strength, but it is so relevant to us today. You have not stopped reigning, you are no less Lord today than you were then, but now we're so busy, we're so distracted, like we prayed this morning, that sometimes we forget who's Lord, and Lord This morning, I hope that this psalm will remind us, will empower us, will encourage us, will challenge us to submit to you as Lord and to proclaim and praise that truth among the nations. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. If you would open your Bibles with me to Psalm 96 as we read through this morning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let all that fills it, let the field exalt, and let everything in it. Then, shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the people in His faithfulness. Amen. Great psalm, great prayer. What does that have to do with Jesus and what does this have to do with us? In this series of Christ in the Psalms, we're going to see how these timeless principles of God's character are fulfilled and perfected in Christ. But the first thing I want you to see here is that the Psalms are songs and they're prayers. And they're, the format, the structure is intentional. So you all have in your bulletins a sermon outline. If you take that out and look at it, there's a structure here that is very important. So if you're looking at your sermon outlines, you'll see that there's the first nine verses are a song, a song of praise with three different stanzas. The first stanza is what we do. We sing and declare who God is. The second stanza is why we do it. For great is the Lord, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Whenever you're reading through scripture, and especially this psalm, watch the fours, F-O-R, because the writers of scripture are very intentional to tell us why they're telling us these things. Watch the fours as we go through this morning. Then verses seven through nine, we get what to do, ascribe to the Lord, give to him what is due. And then the pinnacle, the highlight of this entire text, verse 10, because the Lord reigns and rules. And because he rules, what does creation do? It rejoices. Because he rules, he has the right to judge. And he will judge with equity one day. So as we walk through the psalm, I want you to recognize that structure and keep it in mind. Because one thing that studying the psalms has done for me is it's reinforced that God's attributes are are to be proclaimed and not used to convince or defend. We just proclaim who God is. The Psalms are declaratory rather than persuasive. Now, This is different than when we are in Galatians because Paul's letters in the New Testament, they are persuasive letters. They are encouragement letters to the church. We talk about this quite often that Paul writes the indicative before the imperative. The indicative states what is. The imperative states the command, what is done out of that indicative. But in the Psalms, We see the reverse. The imperative comes before the indicative. What does that mean? The commands, the proclamations, come before the information. The first thing we see in this psalm is sing to the Lord. That's a command. There's no information needed. The indicative drives the passage. That's verse 10. But you follow the command because the basis for the command is understood. You sing to the Lord because he reigns. You declare his salvation because it's true. So when you have an Italian grandmother, who's no longer with me, um, there's always an Italian equivalent to anything, and she's great for sermon illustrations. So there's, there's a parallel here. The Italian equivalent to this is manja. Every Italian grandmother has this in common. It just simply needs eat. But there's this forcefulness to it. There's an urgency, like you are going to eat. I don't care how big the plate is. I don't care if you're full, you're gonna eat. Manja is the, the, the drill sergeant command of every four foot lady with big biceps and a rolling pin in her hand, you listen to her. And no one in the history of Italian grandmothers has ever said, Why do we eat, Nani? What's this food for? It's delicious. You eat. It's understood. You don't have to explain it. And that's what the psalm writer wants us to see. You sing to the Lord. You declare who he is. It's so obvious. The trees bear witness. The rocks will sing out if we don't. Because worshiping the Lord is more natural than eating. More natural than, than breathing we attribute to him the glory that is due because it's obvious goes without saying the creator of the universe is not some wooden idol it's not some false god but he is the lord over all things the judge of the nations worship him because if we don't sing to the lord if we don't praise his name if we don't worship him we will worship something we were created to worship our hearts were designed To be focused on something that we adore. If we don't adore the Lord, we will worship something else. Something created by man, man itself. And ultimately, if we don't worship the Lord, we will worship ourselves. So why does it start out with singing? Verse 1. Why do we sing to the Lord? Why do we sing a new song? The song is new because His mercies are new every morning. This is a new triumph that the Lord of all creation came down to be king to save people from their sins. And he sits and reigns forever. It's about as new as it gets. And every day creation, our lives, the reminder of God's word reminds us that there is a new song for us to sing our God reigns. He's worthy of praise. We sing because of his character and his strength and his beauty and his judgment. But why song? God created music, created melody, created beauty. And the nature of music is to get people to feel what you feel. Songwriters write what they're passionate about. Songwriters bring you into their world. They want you to love what they love. They want you to think what they think. They want you to feel what they what they feel so if the same God whose beauty himself and created beauty and created song is driving songwriters to himself that is the perfect expression of singing of music of worship it is so natural for our hearts to worship we don't realize when we're worshiping other things when we put other things on the throne of our lives You know, songwriters, they bring attention to what matters most. Most songwriters are obsessed with love and heartbreak. These days, we're obsessed with ourselves and sex and power and money and all these things that are self-serving. But we, as the people of God, are to sing to God. Our hearts are to cry out to God, the one worthy of our admiration. And I want you to hear something that praise is only as valuable as its object. I want to say that again, that praise is only as valuable as its object. Because if the object of our praise is ourselves or some man-made idol or some human aspiration, that's as valuable as that praise is going to get. We will easily praise something on social media. We will easily praise a movie or a restaurant or a grandchild. It's all be good things, but our praise is only as valuable as the object. And if our praise is not primarily directed to the God of the universe, to the Lord of all, then it falls flat. So this second verse here, as we continue to sing the theme verse of our church. Praise, bless and tell. You should all commit this to memory. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. That encompasses the gospel. We sing to the Lord first because of who he is. We bless his name. We lift it up among the nations and we tell of his salvation from day to day. This word tell in the Hebrew falls a little flat in English. When we say tell, we, just, we think of a conversation or I'm going to talk to you, we're going to sit down and have a cup of coffee, let me tell you something. This is actually more like a herald. If you don't know what a herald is, a, a herald would have been basically the uh, newspaper headline for the king. When the king goes off to battle, and he wins and he comes back with his conquest, the herald witnesses it and runs back ahead of the king and ahead of the armies because the subjects would want to know what happened. Was our king victorious? What happened in the battle? So the herald walks into town and proclaims what his king has done. He shouts in full confidence because he knows his king is not far behind and his king is triumphant. And this is what our gospel proclaims. So think about it like this. You're the herald. You're king. You watch from afar. You want to make sure you get all the information, but you want to make sure you don't get any shrapnel in the battle, right? You watch from afar, but your king has just rescued people from slavery, taken captives, brought them to freedom, and brought away the spoils of war, and he's coming back in full battle array with his armies behind him on a chariot in victory. You're the herald who might be half a mile ahead of this king. You are coming in full confidence that that king is victorious. How do you proclaim them? How do you tell them? How excited are you? You just witnessed this. This is what the psalm writer is telling us to do. This is how we proclaim the gospel because this is the reality. No, we don't rely on horses and weapons and swords but Our king is victorious. Our king is victorious and he reigns. And that's the king we're proclaiming. And I have to admit, I have to preach this to myself first because I rarely speak with that kind of confidence, but I should. And just contemplating this this week, I realize how often I fall short in that. We are a herald coming before the victorious king and everyone is going to know the truth. They're either going to hear it from our mouths or they're going to see when he comes in glory. And they should hear it both ways. That is the importance of the gospel. Our Lord has triumphed over sin and freed sinners from captivity. So we proclaim that. We tell that day after day. It never gets old. And that's why it's so important to know what we believe. And that's why it's so important what we teach here and why I'm very careful in the words that I use. Because there are many solutions for salvation out there. There are many options. There are many prescriptions on how you can get right with God. But only one leads you to salvation in Jesus Christ. We tell of his salvation. That's why it's so important we know what that salvation is. As we get into verse 3, we declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And this is the great evangelism, and missions test. I mean, we have two brothers here from Taiwan. One will go back in just a few days. This is the purpose of the gospel. It's not just the gospel to Sanford, Florida, or the gospel to Grace Fellowship, or the gospel to the United States. This is the gospel that goes out to all nations throughout all times. This is the gospel that Taiwan needs to hear, that our king is victorious, that he reigns, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. And so, brother, I want you to be encouraged that that is the God who we sung his praises this morning. That is the God who gave us his word, who sent his son. That's who we proclaim. That is the cry of every missionary and evangelist around the globe throughout all time. Because his name is exalted. Let's see how that's fleshed out in the New Testament. If you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read just a couple verses. Verse 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9. Talking about Christ here. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we sing to the Lord, this is who we're singing to. And the gospel for every tongue, tribe, and nation. But woe to the people who put prejudices and preferences above the gospel. Woe to the people who put their own pet projects above proclaiming the Lord. This is what we proclaim, and nothing else. Why? Remember the fours. Verse 4, FOR 4, for great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Who rules? This isn't a power struggle between different gods. It's a proclamation that there is one God and only one God. This is a literary tool called a polemic. Um, And what a polemic is is it's an argument against other religious practices. So what the writer of the psalm here is employing, David is employing is this is a, a polemic against other false gods. Worthless idols. There is one God. And I'm going to contrast him right now. Our God made the universe, created the world. Your God is a false idol. And it's like my God is bigger than yours, God. Kind of a polemic. Um, so you learn a new word today, I try to give you at least one new word every week. Um, it's not something you have to know, but it's used often. It's a tool Paul used quite a bit. Where he would go into these into these cities and he would talk about their gods and contrast it with the real and true God. Because no worthless idol or impotent God can save. Buddha can't save. Allah can't save. Money can't save. Influence can't save. But our God saves. Because our Lord reigns. Verse 5 says, For all the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We see that in John 1 and Colossians 1, that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. He is the focus of creation. This text that talks about the creator of the universe is fulfilled perfectly in Christ. As we go on in verse 6, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Two interesting words. Strength and beauty. The two words that we associate most naturally with males and females. With men, it's strength. We think strength Our muscles and influence. With women, it's beauty. We think beauty is face and figure. Sorry, it's an old saying, but it applies. Um, But how much stronger is the God who holds the world together? The God who created muscles. The God who holds influence and judgment and reign over all things. How much more beautiful is the God who created flowers in birds, in the human form itself. How much more beautiful is God, who's not just beautiful, but beauty itself? We don't even know what beauty is without knowing God. And we haven't even scratched the surface of strength and beauty when we approach our God. And so what do we do with that? Verse 7, We ascribe to the Lord all the families of all the people, Verse seven through nine is how to direct praise. Like, What do we do when we come into the sanctuary? What do we do when we come together as the body? Like we like to say here, We the church is not something um, we do, but it's who we are. As the church, what do we do? We come to bring, to give. The word ascribe means to give, to credit, to assign. Uh, something that is the, the source of belonging or being itself. We are giving to the Lord. We come to bring praises, to give to him. That's what ascribe means. We don't come to get, but to give. We ascribe because he's worthy. This is not some self-absorbed, narcissistic God who needs little puny humans to, to make him feel better about himself like a spoiled child who doesn't have enough kids at his birthday party. This is a God who is worthy of our praise because he deserves it. This is a God, we proclaim anything less than glorious and splendid and holy and worthy, and we don't tremble before him, then we're wasting our time. And why would you praise a God like that? Because many times the world objects to an idea of worshiping a God that's portrayed because the God that's portrayed in many Christian churches is a weak God. It's a petty God. He needs defending. We need to stop making excuses for a weak God that is not the God of the Bible. We have no reason to make excuses for the God of the Bible. The great Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, is great for these one-liners. He said, God is like a lion. You don't have to defend him. You just tell people of his presence, you let him out, and he does the rest. That's who our God is. A lion does not need defending. You just let him out of the cage. We open God's word, we let him out of the cage, and he defends himself. We're just here to proclaim. Verse seven says, "O families of the peoples. It's this nature of who God is, of family worship, of bringing families and tribes and cities and, and clans and peoples together to worship. Is here, as we go forward, I want to unveil uh, unveil this this vision for families that we have. In many churches, when you get to church, you drop your kids off, you separate, you never worship together, you never learn together. But here, we want children to learn with parents. We want you, as an example, when you invite your friends and they bring their children, that they're going to see them worship. They're going to see them pray. They're going to hear the same word preached And they get to have those conversations on the way home that we worship as a family. Because children do not need to be separated and and coddled throughout their entire life. We need to challenge them and encourage them to see the same God that their parents see. And then we see this pattern of worship continue in verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, bring an offering and come in to His courts. I mean, this is the pattern of worship and giving. We come to the Lord. We come into his courts. We bring an offering. That's why we take up a tithe and offering every week. Recognizing that everything we have comes from the Lord. That he is the giver of all good things. He is the provider of everything that we have. We don't give him the leftovers, the the spoiled fruit, the spotted lambs. It's no different. Our first fruits come to Him, the spotless lambs, because He is worthy of our best. The principle that God put before His people throughout all time is that you come before Me with your best, because I will provide you. Put Me to the test, and I will this I will prove myself in. And so we see this pattern of offering and coming before Him in, in, in praise. It's, it's it's giving. It's ascribing not asking in return, God, I'll hand over this little bit if you give me some in return. We give because we know he will provide for us and he will give to us. Continues, worship the Lord in splendor and holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Splendor is beauty on full array. If we knew and proclaimed the splendor of our Lord, we would tremble before him. You know, anyone who's ever seen an angel in Scripture, they fall and want to worship them. They tremble before them. But an angel is a created creature. What would happen if they came before the true and living God? Well, we see this in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15, if you turn there with me. How is this fulfilled in Christ? Well, we see the elders of the church in Revelation, as John is seeing into the future. What do the elders do? Revelation 11, we're going to start in verse 15. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. So the angels that people want to worship are blowing trumpets before the Lord. And what happens? And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Um, I want to explain something this morning. We use these words praise and worship interchangeably. Praise is to exalt, to lift up what you're praising worship is to bow down and prostrate yourself. That is worship. These elders in Revelation, that's what they did. Praise. In Psalm 95, we lift up our hands. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Praise. Worship. We are to worship our God. We are not to worship anything else. We are not to prostrate ourselves before anything else. But Sadly, in our culture, we take the humility and the physicality out of worship, and we sit still, and we straighten our backs, and we're too prim and proper to get on our knees before the creator of the universe. The angels blow trumpets. The elders in heaven who sit around God's throne are on their knees, on their face before him. And We're usually too humble to get on our knees and pray before we go to bed. And why do we worship? The pinnacle of this entire text. Verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. I want you to see three things in this verse. This is the pinnacle of this entire text. This is why we sing. This is why we declare. This is why we ascribe. This verse tells us three things about who the Lord is, and it's so important to our world today. But first, I want to ask some questions. Question number one, who reigns? We're going to spend some time in Revelation this morning because this is fulfilled perfectly in Christ. We see all this Lived out. John witnesses it with his eyes and writes it down. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. Who reigns? If you can't flip around fast enough with me, that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll read slowly, uh, but we're going to jump through a few verses here because I want you to see this fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. Revelation 19, who reigns? Verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of heaven crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The Lamb, the spotless Lamb, is the one reigning. It's the one that all the nations will celebrate and rejoice before Our Lord is our Savior. Next question. Who holds all things together? Because in verse 10, back in Psalm 96, it says the world is established. The world is created and it shall never be moved. Strong words. So who created the earth? Who holds it together? Colossians 1 tells us that very clearly. Colossians 1 verses 16 and 17 say this, if you're not able to flip there fast enough, you can just write down those passages and go back and look at them later. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So who reigns? The Lamb. Who holds all things together? Christ. What's his next statement say? And he will judge the peoples with equity. Well, who will judge? John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. John 5, 22 through 24. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. And he says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The Lamb reigns. The Lord reigns. Christ holds all things together. Christ has been given judgment. And who judges the living and the dead? Acts chapter 10, verses 39 to 42. Acts 10, 39 through 42. Again, if you can't get there with me, just write it down and come back to it later. These are great texts to meditate on. I'm just giving you a springboard. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all that he did. This is his disciples proclaiming this to the peoples. They're heralding it to the peoples. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The Psalms, the prophets, fulfilled in Christ. This is our gospel proclamation. So in the days of the psalmists, they praised God for salvation from Egypt, from the Philistines, their enemies. They knew God was reigning and one would one day judge all. But now through his apostles. We see this fulfilled perfectly in Christ. All of the New Testament proclaims what the Hebrews were looking forward to. We see it in fullness of who reigns and who judges. So I said I had three things for you here. I know it felt like that was 20 minutes ago. It felt like it for me. Uh, but the three things I want you to see is, one, God is in control. The world is secure. No need for doubt And anxiety, why? Because the Lord reigns. And we live in a global society. The two things we hear people worry about all the time are who has power in the world for good and what are we going to do about our planet? Well, I think verse 10 answers both of those for us. Who has power in the world for good and what are we going to do about the earth? Because verse 10 tells us The Lord reigns, ruling, power. The world is established. It shall never be moved. The one who established it will sustain it. That's the second thing. Don't take concern for something that God has in his hands. Christ holds all things together. The world shall not be moved. Those are strong words from the psalmist. Don't take your cues from the alarmist whose only hope is in the world and in this planet. Because if all you know is wrapped up in what you can see in your senses, then of course you're going to be scared that it's going to be taken from you at any moment. It's no fear of ours. It's no concern of ours. We don't need to fear the state of the planet or that justice will ultimately be done because the one who established it will sustain it. And the one who sustains the earth will do justice, will bring justice one day because our Lord reigns. So the, so the third thing, justice. He will judge the peoples with equity. One, God is in control. Two, he sustains the earth. Three, he will judge and this is not what you would picture in a criminal court, the judge in a gown, in a gavel. In the Hebrew context, the judge, the word means champion. It was a person for the people, a champion for the people. In the book of Judges, when some of the most wickedness we've seen in all of scripture was going on, people did what was right in their own eyes. They did whatever they wanted to do. God put judges in place to reign equitably over people. And Um, equitable to judge with equity means to be just or impartial. They were there to solve disputes and keep order. And in the Hebrew culture wrongly, they thought that they were the righteous ones. They were the judges. They could judge the non-believers, the Gentiles. But as Christians we realize no wait, we're the ones being prosecuted. We're the defendants. We're The guilty ones. But we know, thankfully, that he doesn't judge fairly. I didn't mistake those words. He does not judge fairly. Because if God was fair, we would die the moment we sin. Every sin is an offense to God. A fair judge would punish every sin right where it stood. Our God is just, but he's merciful. Thank God that he's a merciful judge. Every sin will be paid for, but not every sin will be paid for by the perpetrator. Sin will be punished either by a son or either by the one who offends God. So God as a judge cannot be bought this, this, this justice here, they had the same problem that we have now. If you're you a rich person, you could slide a few coins under the judge's table and get the decision to go your way. The equity that God judges is true. It is right. He's not influenced. He will judge the arrogant and he will save the humble. That is our just judge, our merciful judge. And so that is our encouragement in this world today. Because when we see shootings and we see hatred and we see violence and we see bloodshed and the world worries, the world frets, what do we do? We know who holds the world. We know who reigns. We know who the judge is. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The wicked will prosper, but for a moment. But one day, all things will be made right. All things will be made new. Our judge is just. He's impartial. Because a good judge offers justice and mercy. And that is our gospel. Our Lord reigns and he is merciful. He punishes sin, but yet he pardons sinners. And he pardons sinners by punishing his son, the spotless lamb. So what do we do with verse 10? What's what's the response here? Let all the heavens be glad. Let all the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. The world rejoices in who rules over it. The trees will shout out. Not too long ago, we went uh, to North Carolina. If you've ever been in the Smoky Mountains, gone along the Blue Ridge Parkway, and you look out, and what looks like hundreds of hills and millions of trees, green in every direction, and you can't see the glory of God in that, you're blind. But if you see the glory of God in that, they are singing. They are pointing you to a beautiful creator. And one day when he comes again, they will sing. They will cry out, for the spotless lamb who came to save the world and to make all things new. So the conclusion here is for he will come, verse 13, to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. He reigns and he's coming to judge. Um, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, I was not going to read it. Um, but you can go there later if you'd like. But this is Jesus' disciples again proclaiming that the one who comes to judge, he judges in righteousness. Repent, turn to him, and be tied to his righteousness. Now notice the wording here is so particular. Look at the end of verse 13. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness those who put their faith in Christ, we're judged by Him, not us. Thank the Lord we're judged for His faithfulness and not ours. As Jesus Christ is judge and ruler over all, but our hope is righteous judgment, is perfect judgment in Him. We're not left to the, to the whims of fickle rulers and corrupt politicians and crazy gunmen. We're in the hands of the Almighty God, the perfect judge. So, how do we conclude this morning? This section in the Psalms, the beginning of book four, talks about the reign of the Lord, and you can continue to read uh, through chapters 97 and, and, and 98 in Psalms. Just a great section should encourage you who God is and how He reigns. But Christ is coming. He's coming to judge. And who, what are we told to do? Like the virgins waiting outside of the wedding party, as Jesus tells this this parable, that the bridegroom is coming home soon. Keep plenty of oil in your lamps. Wait for the Lord. Watch like watchmen wait. Meaning, be on a lookout. Be alert. Don't sleep and think that tomorrow is going to be just like today one day he's coming coming to judge the living and the dead repentance is today repentance is now repentance in belief is the cry of every believer telling of salvation over and over and over again we talked about so many times the already and not yet principle of the christian life john saw the things that were already they happened before his eyes in revelation but they're not yet come to fruition David writing this Psalm saw the Lord reigning, saw the Lord coming to judge prophetically, even though it hasn't come yet. This is a surety. There is no doubt in the Christian life who rules and reigns. So what does that mean for us? Our Savior is also Lord of all. So because our Lord reigns, we can sing. Because our Lord reigns, we can worship. Because our Lord reigns, we give our best to him. Because our Lord reigns, we declare his salvation. Because our Lord reigns, we tell the nations. Because our Lord reigns, we don't have to fear judgment. Because our Lord reigns, we don't have to fear the state of the earth. Because our Lord reigns, we will reign with him one day. Let's pray. Lord, I, I don't feel worthy to come before you with this. The weight of who you are and your splendor and your majesty has kind of buried me this, this week. Like, How do I do justice to this text? You created the trees. You created the, the air. You created my, my lungs. You wove and knit me in my mother's womb. How do I even come before you? How do I even speak your name? But yet you knew me before the foundation of the earth. You sent your son for me. And for those of us here who have repented, and believed and turned to the spotless lamb, to the Lord of all creation, you know us, you love us. We will not go through judgment. We will pass from death to life. Lord, I just pray that this That that today, those of us who are in Christ will be energized and we will be encouraged and we will be motivated to go out and proclaim the gospel to the nations because we are heralding the victorious King. And if you don't know Christ, if you are not judged according to His faithfulness, you will be judged according to your disobedience. And that today would be a call for running to the Lord of creation, to surrendering the throne of your life, to recognizing Him as Savior, that His salvation would be applied to your life. And that when we go out from this place, that we'd be confident in what we believe, that we would be unshaken in who our Savior is, because you reign Because you reign. Because you reign. Amen.